Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking Regency Scrabble. So the focus of this week's episode is a critical scene in the novel, Emma. At the point in question, we're about, what'd you say, what, two thirds of the way yeah, through probably. the novel? Yeah. Yeah, so Mr. Ellington is married, Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax are both in Highbury at this point. It's a lovely summer evening, you know, <laughs> the beauties of Surrey, and ah, <laughs> oh, the beauties of Surrey, and Knightley has walked up to Hartfield after dinner to spend his evening like he does, and Emma and Harriet are about to go out for a walk, so he joins them, and then on the way back, they run into Mr. and Mrs. Weston, Frank Churchill, Miss Bates, and Jane Fairfax. It's just like a real party right it off is, the bat here. Yeah. So Emmett invites them all in for tea, and I love this because this is exactly the kind of impromptu, sort of like casual entertainment with close friends mm-hmm. that Mr. Woodhouse loves, and so she's partially doing it for her father. Yeah. It's also really funny to me because random people showing up at my house is fully my idea of a nightmare, so I just, I'm like, <laughs> the idea too. that this is what this is what Mr. Woodhouse is more comfortable with, I was like, <laughs> wow, you would think he would prefer like like an invitation six months in advance, yes. you know? Yes. <laughs> but, but he's like, oh, a cozy, friendly, friendly thing. No strangers allowed, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so they all go inside and they're just chatting and Frank asks about Mr. Perry's plans for setting up a carriage and claims that Mrs. Weston wrote him about it. And she's all, I have no idea what you're talking about. And <laughs> yeah, because the person who actually wrote you about that was Jane. So all of this has happened in the moments before Frank suggests that they amuse themselves with the alphabet letters left by Emma's nephews. He, he's like, oh, let's play a game. Have this whole awkward conversation about what the town apothecary is doing with this carriage situation. And... <laughs> Mrs. Weston being like, what? And he's all, I think I dreamt it. Like, it's, yes. just, <laughs> it's so bad. Like, and then he's like, um, immediately, we must play word games. Yes. He says, Miss Woodhouse, said Miss Frank Churchill after examining a table behind him, which he could reach as he sat. Have your nephews taken away their alphabets, their box of letters? It used to stand here. Where is it? This is the sort of dull looking evening that ought to be treated rather as winter than summer. We had great amusement with those letters one morning. I want to puzzle you again. But he doesn't really want to play puzzles with with Emma. That's not really like the purpose. Like he's setting himself up here to be able to kind of send a secret message to Jane. Yeah, it's it's both like diversionary tactic from the fact Mm -hmm. that he just screwed up. Yeah, totally messed up. And also, he needs to find a way to communicate with Jane about the fact that he just revealed to anybody who's really paying attention, which as we will find out, the only person who's really paying attention is Knightley, that the two of them have been corresponding, which is not allowed. Like, you don't do that. Yeah, you must be engaged and must be engaged openly for that to happen. (laughs) You have to be either related to the person in question or engage them. So Mm -hmm. you can write letters to your brother or you can write letters to your fiancé. And by fiancé, I mean... This has to be publicly acknowledged, blessed by the family. None of this like under the table kind of business that the two of them got going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's no surprise then that as they're playing with these alphabet letters, that Frank, one of his first words that he creates is actually something that he puts forward for Jane to read. And Jane reads it and then like pushes it away. And like, it's supposed to be something that nobody else reads. But curious little Harriet decides to kind of figure it out. And she announces to the room that it's blunder the word is blunder dun 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 (laughs) (laughs) and mr knightley is over here going i think there's something more going on here Mm -hmm. than just a box of alphabet letters okay (laughs) yes detective knightley is on the case yeah (laughs) detective just picture him with his magnifying glass and his little deerstalker hat (laughs) 
I'm sure that's how I went. <laughs> oh, I mean, kind of like how we discussed in a previous episode, the idea of Darcy vampire yes. fic. I wonder if we have nightly, nightly detective fic. Oh, man, I need this. Somebody please plumb the depths of AO3 and Kindle Unlimited and get back to us <laughs> on that. That would be great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so before we kind of get more into the scene, let's talk a little bit about the object itself and what is it that they are playing with? Like, what is it that Frank has decided to bust out yeah. as like his, look at this, don't look at me. <laughs> it's tactic. an illusion. These would have been a popular educational toy at the time, just these alphabet sets. And in addition to teaching children the alphabet, they would have also been used by adults in parlor games like we see here. And alphabet sets were certainly something you could purchase. And in fact, the Austin family actually owned a box of alphabet letters, which is currently in the Jane Austen House Museum collection. And we'll definitely post a photo of this on our Instagram. And in the case of this scene in Emma, the letters in question are actually homemade, which I think is a detail that is kind of easy to glance over. Mr. Woodhouse, as we know, prefers quiet pursuits as the party is chatting and playing with the letters. Mr. Woodhouse, quote, sat happily occupied and lamenting with tender melancholy. Oh, Mr. Woodhouse, over the <laughs> departure of the poor little boys or in fondly pointing out as he took up any stray letter near him, how beautifully Emma had written it. So he's over here just like, you know, on one with one hand, he's like, oh, my grandchildren have left. And with the other hand, he's like, oh, but look at this letter. Look how beautiful Emma has written it. <laughs> so, yes, Emma's accomplishments. No, no bounds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so these are letters that Emma has made for the boys. Like she has made these for her nephews as, as something for them to play with and presumably to learn from. Sure. And I have to say, as someone who has made many a homemade flashcard or game for my toddler i just feel really seen here in this moment like emma you and i are like really vibing with each other right well i think it's and it is very interesting that that emma is the one that made this um i think that is interesting because this would normally be kind of the purview of the governess or like the mom that would be kind of the way that this kind of went down because um the way that georgian toys are kind of like a really popular really really popular trend right now um because there's this kind of big vibe in in this time period that we need to be able to teach children, but it needs to also be play. And this is kind of riffing off of some some thoughts, particularly from John Locke. So so this is like, okay, we're adopting these theories. And so these toys are actually really popular at the time. These are the kind of um, the really fine examples like the one that was Jane Austen's alphabet box. Those would have been created and sold by booksellers. It was, you know, hot market for wealthy families. But these kind of games and things would have been really pushed on on governesses and, and mothers particularly to kind of educate the child through play. Yeah, in addition to these alphabet games or sets for kids, there were also alphabet books, which is obviously something we still have today. Two of my favorites. We have The Invited Alphabet, which was published by B. Tabert and Co. in London in 1809. The full title of this book is The Invited Alphabet or Address of A to B, containing his friendly proposal for the amusement and instruction of good children, which just, <laughs> so good. I love book titles from this era. They're just they're so good. They're like little novels in themselves. Yeah, exactly. Like everything you need to know about this. It's like a movie trailer. Yes. And that was put out by RR, just two initials, RR, who, as far as I can tell, was an anonymous author. And Princeton's digital library actually has the full book available, so you can see all the illustrations. The same author also put out a follow-up volume titled The Assembled Alphabet, or Acceptance of A's Invitation, concluding with a glee for three voices, being a sequel to The Invited Alphabet. So it's really just like... It. It's a saga. Like, it's a whole sitcom, you know, like A and B become friends. The one invites the other over. What a delight. Oh, it's so good. And what I love about this is you can actually purchase a facsimile reprint version of this book on Amazon right now for $13.56. So <laughs> anyway, let's get back to these alphabet boxes and talk a little bit about the types of materials that were used. So for instance, 
Jane Austen's alphabet box is made of it's it's an inlaid box, but the but the letters themselves are actually carved ivory, and that is in itself obviously a very precious material. But also these boxes from this era are also largely made of mahogany, which is again another very rich material, kind of like you know a wealth signifier, obviously. Right. But these are all these these materials are also very big signifiers of British Empire. Right. Obviously, ivory coming from Africa, and it's very closely aligned with the slave trade. Whereas mahogany is coming from South America, and it's you know the British have a, a kind of stranglehold on that. So for them to be these educational toys for children in wealthy families, but they're also kind of signifying not just like wealth of the family, but kind of wealth of the empire in terms of like look at all the things that we can own. Right. I mean, they're like play toys for children, and they are also direct products of colonialism and slavery. That's how materials like ivory and mahogany were sourced. And so that is how many of these objects were created. And it's important to acknowledge that even when discussing this silly situation with Frank and Emma and this game that they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like it, this this idea that, that Austin's material culture is never kind of happening within a vacuum, basically. So the fact that Austin herself owned a physical object that is denoting this empire and colonialism. And it's very, very prevalent in this period for that to be the case. So even though in Emma, we, we know that this is kind of a handwritten set, we know that Austin owned a physical ivory set, and that because the Woodhouses are wealthy, and they have these children in their house, we know that there probably was a set somewhere in their house, um, or that the, at the, at the, the Knightleys probably had one as well. Sure. Um, they maybe just, maybe just left it home. They didn't take it, you know, it's not the travel set. It's really interesting that Austin decided to have Emma do these as like a, a handmade craft that she did with the kids because we know that this is a wealthy family. Like like you said, like they could have certainly afforded to have purchased a set like this. They may, may very well have had one in the house. But, you know, Emma instead is like getting down with her Regency Pinterest self. Just- yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, and then I think it's also interesting um, getting kind of back to the game itself. It's really interesting to see the way that these these alphabet letters and boxes were advertised. I mean, obviously, we've titled this episode Regency Scrabble, and it's like 100% the precursor to Scrabble <laughs> and Bananagrams and whatever, you know, letter games you want to talk about. Because they had a bunch of different, like, really creative games. And it could be kind of like these really basic children games where it's like A on one side and then a picture of an apple on the other side. Like, you know, that's very normal alphabet game at this time period. But it's also very common for them to do what they're doing in the novel, which is to do the anagrams where, you know, you, you put the letters all mixed up in front of somebody and they have to try and riddle it out. Or there's acrostics, which is kind of like the crossword kind of idea. There's letter associations, riddles, etc. And again, we've, we've already talked about Detective Knightley. <laughs> this novel is full of riddles. It's full of these riddles that have to be solved. And so the fact that we're seeing, you know, blunder happening here in this particular scene, I mean, we're also seeing a little bit of this uh, later in the novel where we're at Box Hill, and we have Mr. Weston actually doing a letter riddle. He says, what two letters of the alphabet are there that express perfection? You know, and then Emma says, what two letters express perfection? I'm sure I do not know. And he says, ah, you will never guess. You, to Emma, I am certain will never guess. I will tell you, M and A. Emma, do you understand? So he's, he's got this like word puzzle that's going on. And it's, you know. I mean, it's such like a peak dad joke oh, moment as well. <laughs> 100% dad joke energy here. It's like you do like one of those like, ha ha ha, ha okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then, and then afterwards, we kind of get Knightley's kind of stinging like, well, perfection's come too soon. I'm out. But the fact that we have word games happening 
prevalently in this scene with the alphabet letters, but then it's also kind of this like the word game and word associations is happening throughout this novel. And I think we see it in other novels as well. I mean, they didn't have electricity. <laughs> like they didn't have television. What were we supposed to do? You know? Right? Right? Earlier on in the novel, we also get the riddle book that Emma and Harriet are putting together. And so we're getting wordplay there. And that is definitely something we will talk about. In oh, for sure. Episode. I mean, that, that's its own very unique thing. But I just I just wanted to point out that there is a lot of wordplay, a lot of word games happening throughout the novel, and they're all significant to the plot. I distinctly remember when I read this for the first time when I was what, 12 or 13, and I loved it. And I it was one of those books where I basically immediately reread it. I am a huge rereader oh, by yeah, admission. Oh, yeah, because you're like, now I know what's going on. Yeah. But I enjoyed it even more the second time around because I was just like, ah, I see what's happening here. Oh, Frank, I see you. Oh, you white, you know, like. <laughs> Your haircut, my eye. <laughs> it was all just like so much more enjoyable because I was like, I see what's happening here. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, sure. I wonder who the secret piano is from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, and, then, and then you're more savvy to like when Knightley's just like, I'm not buying it, kids. Not yep, buying it. Yep. You know, at the end of the scene, when he takes Emma aside, he's like, are you really sure you know what's going on here? Like between Frank and Jane. And she's just like, <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> and he's like, no, but really. <laughs> he's on to Frank. Well, I think, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just so fun to see these word puzzles kind of happening. And that, and that it is really a big clue, a huge clue as to the entire Jane Frank plot twist. We have this whole prior conversation before about Perry's carriage and Frank's knowledge of that fact. And then, you know, of course, Frank giving Jane the word blunder and then the way she blushes and just like nightly seeing all of this. And he knows that something fishy is going on, which I just I just love, like (laughs) even the way that that Austin writes from Knightley's perspective, like we are basically seeing him seeing all of this happening. So we know, like as the reader, we need to be paying attention here. Something is going on because we're seeing it through Knightley watching it and being suspicious of what is going on. Yeah. Yeah, that free indirect discourse, especially in Austen's novels, because she's kind of masterful at it. It's like you always need to be paying attention to who we're actually getting the perspective from. And so when, and we don't get nightly that often, but when we do, it's significant. Of course, Austen would never give me a full chapter of just like nightly pining or whatever. (laughs) Well, this is why like, okay, this is total side issue, but this is also why I have major, major heart emoji energy for North and South, which is like right. Austin fanfic. And it's like a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, but like you get full chapters from Thornton's perspective. And it was like, <laughs> this is everything I didn't know I needed. Oh, it's so good. Oh, we don't need to go off of too many tangents, but wow. Read that book, people. Seriously. For so real. good. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, we of course find out later that Jane and Frank have been corresponding this time. Everything about this whole scene is just like one of those things where if you were like kind of on the fence about Frank, you're really not going to be a Frank fan after this <laughs> because... Okay, him messing up with the Perry's carriage thing, you know, that is a blunder, right? right? That is unintentional. That's not malicious, like whatever. But then giving Jane the word Dixon and doing it in such a way where he shows it to Emma ahead of time. It is such like a middle school bully situation where like the two people are whispering together in the cafeteria and they're like, oh, you know, go tell her this. Go say this to her. Go say this to her. And so everybody knows. So it's like he tells Emma, oh, I'm going to give her this. And she's like, oh my gosh, don't do it. It's really just like Emma at her worst. It's Frank at his worst. It is, it's just not a good look for either of them. He's totally gaslighting Jane at yeah. this moment. It's, it's, it's really unflattering. <laughs> it's just, it's so, I just think it's so cruel because yeah. it's this big joke between Frank and Emma that Jane had a thing with her best friend's husband, Dixon. And of course, like, Jane would be hugely hurt by that insinuation. And so just in order to, 
I don't know, like amuse Emma or whatever. You know, he shows her the word Dixon. She's like, oh my gosh. And then he gives it to Jane. And I'm just like, what is Frank thinking here? Oh, let me divert suspicion away from my secret engagement by giving my fiance an ulcer. I just, in all of these moments, whenever I'm reading this book, I'm just like, it's a good thing you're so rich. You know what I mean? Like that is your one redeeming quality. Like, congratulations. I'm so glad you're so rich. Yeah. It's the worst. I'm just like, Frank, what are you doing? And then what I love is then... I think he does it and then is immediately like, ooh, that was a really bad idea. Yeah. This is, again, one of those scenes where we're reading it through Knightley's perspective. So with great indignation, did he continue to observe him? So yeah, he's like, I'm not impressed. Not a fan of Frank here, okay? (laughs) With great alarm and distrust to observe also his two blinded companions, he saw a short word prepared for Emma and given to her with a look sly and demure. Like, those are not complimentary words. Mm -mm. Like, sly, it's like, oh, you are a weasel. He saw that Emma had soon made it out and found it highly entertaining, though it was something which she judged it proper to appear to censure. For she said, nonsense, for shame. So it's like, Emma's like laughing, but also like, oh, don't, no, you can't, oh, you can't, you can't, you know, don't don't do it. He heard Frank Churchill next say, with a glance towards Jane, I will give it to her, shall I? And as clearly heard Emma opposing it with eager laughing warmth, no, no, you must not, you shall not indeed. (laughs) It's just like, oh, wow, come on. You are acting like 13 year olds, like, what are you doing? And as soon as he does it, Jane figures it out. And her main response is just, I did not know that proper names were allowed and to push them away. You know, she's clearly upset. She kind of like physically turns her face away from the two of them. So Knightley, again, we're seeing this all through his perspective. He's seen all this happen. He's just like, okay, I do not approve of this. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, because it's only again through his eyes that we actually see that it's Dixon. They've clearly hurt Jane's feelings. And so he's like, I want to know what that what that joke was. And then he's like, okay, yeah, not cool kids. Mr. Knightley's excessive curiosity to know what this word might be made him seize every possible moment for darting his eyes toward it. I see Detective Knightley again. Yes, the case. yes 100%. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to move my face. I'm just going to like dart my eyes over when no one's looking and just kind of, oh, okay, I got a D. Okay, uh, X. Okay, oh, there's an I, an N, an O. Okay, oh, what is, oh, Dixon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. He's a whiz at deductive reasoning. I mean, I feel like Knightley probably would be really good at crossword puzzles, you know, if this was modern <laughs> times, you know. He would just blast through those New York Times crossword puzzles, no problem. <laughs> and then, of course, we then later see in the same scene that Frank gives Jane another letter. And she doesn't even look at it. She just, like, sweeps it off. She's just like, don't, I am not talking to you. Which, you know, good for you, Jane. Like, I really appreciate this. Yes. Like, everything about her in this scene is just, she's letting him know she's not happy. I'm impressed. So a fun little detail that I love is that, because we never find out in the book what that letter was yeah. that... Frank gave her that she was just like, no, thank you. But according to family lore, the word that Jane Fairfax sweeps away without even glancing at it is pardon. So Frank is just like, oh, sorry, I just hugely insulted you in one of the worst ways possible. Let me now say sorry to you with alphabet tiles. Yes. (laughs) Okay. You're going to have to do a little bit better than that. Surprisingly, that doesn't work. (laughs) And again, I say it's a good thing he's so rich. Poor Jane. Poor Jane. Uh, Wow. What a cat. (laughs) You can tell that that Diane and I are not massive fans of Frank Churchill, um, and we just feel really sorry for Jane Fairfax. I totally get why she married him. And if I'm, like, making a list of your marriageable prospects and Austin novels, like, I'm still going to rake him above. He's nowhere near, you know, like a Willoughby or a Wickham or any of those kind of guys for me. Not only because of the level of his misdemeanors is more... They're just dumb. They're just like dumb teenage boy stuff, you know? I'm just like, how old are you? (laughs) He's just incredibly narcissistic he doesn't see that it's a problem so either he will mature and grow out of that or he will continue to be thoughtless and careless and a horrible husband but at least as from as far as we know 
we don't have any evidence that he's like a degenerate right. or whatever. Yeah. So again, at least he's rich. Yes. <laughs> Which is not a small consideration for a woman in Jane's position at this time. Right. Yeah. So. Governess or rich man's wife. That he, and, and, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. And then doesn't, isn't it Knightley at the end of the book who says something like, she will be the making of him. Yes, exactly. Like the, the kind of implication is that somebody like Frank needs somebody to whip him into shape. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess like whether you think they will have a happy ending depends on what do you have more faith in? Jane's mm. fortitude and character or Frank kind of being the worst? <laughs> Which one is going to win? <laughs> uh, well, you know, and, and since he's so immature, you know, maybe he's very easily diverted you know like go 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 play with the alphabet tiles in the corner frank there might be like molding potential here you yeah. know <laughs> there might be some opportunities so one of the things that i think is really interesting is just the word blunder itself or its variants you know blunders blundering etc yeah. it doesn't come up and let me preface this all by this this is done by the highly scientific research of diane searching through her digital editions so <laughs> <laughs> if somebody wants to double check my work, feel free. Should be accurate. If it's off, it should only be off by a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it doesn't come up in Pride and Prejudice or Northanger Abbey. Comes up uh, twice in Sense and Sensibility, twice in Persuasion. Mm-hmm. But it comes up 15 times in Emma. So this is like the word of the novel. Again, yeah. blunder or its variants. And I feel like blunder is such a great word to describe the actions of so many of the characters. Yes. Particularly, and, and Frank is a perfect example of that, right? Like, particularly when those actions, they aren't purely malicious or it's a situation where the result does not match the intention. Like, again, yeah. <clears throat> Frank, like, <laughs> he's yeah. like, oh, I was just trying to divert suspicion away from the fact that we were corresponding. So I thought I, instead of implying that you and I were secretly engaged, I thought instead that I would imply that you had a thing with a married guy because that's better, I guess. Yeah. Like, it's more interesting. But it's just this kind of like careless unthought of kind of gaff that's happening. Exactly. And of course, like Emma herself is the queen of sort of the know-it-all blunder. Yes. I just love like, again, compared to some of those other books and how frequently that word is used because it is, it's a, a pretty specific type of word. Yeah. The next highest is Mansfield Park where it's used six times, which to me tracks because that's another book where everyone is in love with the wrong person. Right. So. right. So we've kind of had this really, really fantastic kind of overview of the way that these these pieces are all working together. And we're really looking forward to kind of sharing on Instagram some of the visual representations of these letters and alphabets um, and some other kind of feelings that we have about blunders. <laughs> exactly. So you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. And you can email us at the thing about Austin at gmail.com. And as always, we so appreciate everyone who subscribes to the podcast and especially any of you who hit that five star button on Apple podcasts or leave us a great review. It really helps us out. Stay tuned for next episode where we'll be talking about Marianne's passion for dead leaves. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.